0: also appreciate when Adam leads and they choose the song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ and Me. Because if you're going to lead that song singing, it's really tough when your eyes get all overwhelmed with tears and everything else. So I can sit over there and let my emotions just roll over me because it's not I, but through Christ and me. And that's my prayer this morning, that together... We would look into his word and see Christ, that he would help us do. Let me open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your gracious gift of our Savior, Jesus. For it's by him and through him and for him that all things were created in heaven and on earth, including us, created yet recreated by the grace to be your thankful people. Father, as we look again into the beginning of the redemptive story. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, would feed your people, would glorify you, O Lord, my rock, my rock, and my redeemer. And it's in Jesus name that I pray. Amen. As a word of Jesus began to spread throughout Israel that this may be the awaited Messiah. The religious leaders tried to trap and discredit him with theological puzzles. In Mark 12, the judicial authorities called the Sadducees put uh, an invented story about the fate of a widow to Jesus. Part of the safety social net in Israel in those times was that a childless widow would be then uh, married by the dead man's brother to carry on and pass on his brother's name through children. So the Sadducees posed this dilemma to Jesus. They said, a man had seven brothers. When he died, his brother took his wife, but before there were children, he died. So the next brother took her, and then he died, and so on down the line through seven brothers. Then they asked, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as his wife. Jesus said to them, you're wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That God is the God of the living, and it's essential to our confidence and understanding of our faith How he gives eternal life and how that that is done is revealed, first of all, in the book of Genesis. Now, Christian preaching and teaching mostly focuses on the New Testament because we long for that sweetness of Jesus. We long for that good news of the gospel. We need that. But the how and why Jesus saves us is grounded in the Old Testament. Jesus stressed the importance of knowing all the scriptures, he said. And Genesis is the opening act of the redemptive story, the story of a merciful and gracious God who rescues his image bearers who tragically rebelled and fell into a, a, a condition they could not rescue themselves from. And then focusing on the New Testament is then like coming into near the climax of a movie. You get the point. It's a wonderful scene, but unless you know all of what's gone on beforehand, you miss the import and the beauty of that of that great uh, of that great moment. And I believe it's difficult then to see the full brilliance of the light of the cross and the resurrection unless we have seen the deep darkness that preceded it. We need to get the contrast by knowing all the scriptures because they present the whole story. So the intent of this long-running series that I've called Infinite Grace Ultimate Blessing has been to look at the beginning of the story. Jesus told the Sadducees they were wrong because they didn't understand how Abraham and how Isaac and Jacob still lived. To understand how God is the God of the living and why and how he gives life, and what kind of life he gives, we must know Genesis, because it's the start of the story. Now, I've said long-running series because we started this in 2019. On my preaching schedule, we're lucky to be to the 35th chapter by now. But so far, we've learned that Genesis is divided into Ten sections, each marked by the Hebrew word "toledot." Remember that "toledot." It's translated into the English as "these are the generations of," and then the name that follows identifies the offspring of that person in the in the story ahead. Genesis one one then marks the first toledot. It tells of the earth's first generation, Adam and Eve, created in God's image from the Dust of the earth. The second Toledot is announced in Genesis 5 1. This is the book of the generation of Adam, and then the account of Adam's son Seth and his offspring follows, and it ends with Noah. The third follows Noah's sons, the fourth Toledot, his grandsons, the fifth introduces Shem's son Terah, and the sixth follows his son Abraham. Now we're getting on familiar ground, aren't we? Abraham's son Ishmael is the subject of the seventh book, and the eighth Toledot describes the events we've been following recently in the lives of Esau and Jacob. So today in chapter 35, we come to the end of this eighth book where we find that Jacob has lost his father, his mother, and his beloved Rachel. The old generation is passing away in preparation for the next. Jacob's sons must carry on the promise, and that will be in the tenth and final book within the book of Genesis. So this morning I've titled this message, Jacob's Bittersweet Reward. Because as Jacob's hard work for God is about to come to an end, will he find peace and satisfaction in his efforts or remorse over his failures? And that's a question each of us will one day have to answer. The generations will continue to roll on and one will pass to the other and we must pass the reins to the next. And God has preserved this story in Jacob's life so we can learn how to properly Pass the promise, as we've had the children sing in the past. How to properly pass the promise we've received to the next generation. It's not an easy task, and it's not always done well, but Jacob provides for us a lesson that shows us how to and how not to anticipate and live through this change. Here's the one big idea I want to draw out of this text. It's on the top of your handout. We must eventually pass our work to the next generation as God advances his promise. When we're young, this reality seems far off because our focus is on growing. It's on our family and our career and our education and the work that we do. And the hopes that we have. So we're growing in those younger years. But there will come a time. When each of us must step aside. For the next generation. And how that transition is handled. On both sides. By those who are passing the promise. And those who are receiving it. That will determine our legacy. Content. For bittersweet, will we pass the mantle joyfully with discernment or hang on desperately like an aging sports star who simply refuses to give up until everyone knows his time has passed? Will the next generation pick up the work patiently and with gentle but firm grace or grab it firmly and rudely? Both lessons are found in this 8th Toledot in Genesis 35. So we'll look at the text in our usual three parts. First, God's divine rescue. Second, Jacob's mixed reaction. And third, the sad response by a member of the next generation. So as we begin, I would invite you to stand for a reading of the portion of this text starting in Genesis 35. Verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. This they did, and dropping down to verse 10, after Jacob obeyed, look at this, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give to the land the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Please be seated. Now last time in chapter thirty-four we looked at one of the cringe worthy passages in Genesis It described the rape of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, by Leah and the revenge of Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's brothers. In response to the young prince Shechem violating their sister, Simeon and Levi killed him and every other man in the city of Shechem. And then Pillage the whole thing along with their brothers. Now at this low point in Jacob's life, God brings divine rescue. After the destruction of Shechem, Jacob was terrified by the revenge that was sure to come from his Canaanite neighbors. They weren't a friendly crowd to strangers, and Jacob and his family were strangers. So he said to his sons at the end of Chapter 34, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, in response to Jacob's fear, in our opening verse, God said, Arise, Jacob, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Now, it's ironic because Bethel is a place where Jacob should have been all along. Twenty years earlier, when he was fleeing Esau, he stopped at Bethel. And there in a dream, God appeared to him standing next to a ladder on which angels were ascending and descending. And when Jacob awoke, after God had repeated to him the promise he had given to Abraham and he had given to Isaac, when he awoke, Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place. And then he made this vow. It's found in Genesis twenty-eight nineteen. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will bring me and keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And God has done that. Is Jacob in Bethel? No, he's in Shechem. Years later, this massacre in Shechem, as his enemies are about to rise up, God brings Jacob graciously and safely back to where he should have been in the promised land. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly amazed at the patience of God with us. But the New Testament book of Hebrews explains why. And it uses Genesis as the basis. In Hebrews 6.13, we read this. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, sure, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's the promise he gave to Abraham. And as Abraham's grandson now, Jacob is heir to that Abrahamic promise. It's passed from it's passed from Abraham to Isaac, and Isaac has passed it on to Jacob, in a manner of speaking. And then the writer of Hebrews continues, "When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who would that be? All of the all of the people of God. More convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose." He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. That's Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18. Now the two unchangeable things here are God's character and his promise. And God rescues Jacob, for the same reason, he rescues you and me over and over again because of two unchangeable things, his promise and his character. He cannot change his mind. So this brings us to our first fill-in, it's one that kind of really sort of cements in our hope. God's patient grace never changes for those he has redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ, God's patient grace never changes for those who have faith in Christ. Now, I've been reading Joseph Piper's classic work titled "Faith, Hope, and Love." It was written in the 30s. Uh, Piper was a 20th-century Roman Catholic theologian in Germany, and. While he offers great insights into these gifts of faith and hope and love, he believed that we live with what he called an uncertainty of salvation. Because he said the ever-present possibility of voluntary defection of our faith or from our faith is always before us. So he said hope lives intimately with fear. But Jesus said this. John 6:37 All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Later on Jesus says, "No one can snatch them from my hands. And my Father is greater than I and no one can snatch them from his hands." So who's right? Joseph Piper or Jesus? I'd go with Jesus. Because this promise from Jesus rests at the very heart of the gospel. And it's the anchor that we need to not fall into hope yet fear that Piper describes. The worry that Piper had. The promise is important. It's vital to our faith. And it brings us to the second point. Jacob's mixed reactions because like jacob we respond to this grace with mixed reactions now look back at verse one briefly and then verse two in verse one god commanded and then verse two jacob he reacted properly he said to his household and to all who were with him put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Now back in chapter 31, when Jacob left Laban and Laban chased him down, when he caught up with him, Laban's main complaint was, Why did you steal my God? Why did you steal my gods? And Jacob was surprised because he didn't realize Rachel had taken the household gods. So he offered Laban, he said, go ahead, search my entire camp. If I've taken anything from you, then I am guilty. Rachel cleverly sat on them so that Laban never found them. But the point is, in the ancient Near East, these little idols and the rings and amulets that went through it went with them, were the, the, uh, the way that people worshipped um, in a sort of a syn- syncretic way. They had God, they had the idols as well. So, because it was such a part of the culture, these idols were a constant stumbling block to God's people. But to Jacob's credit, he understands that as the bearer of the messianic promise— the the promise made to Abraham, he could not tolerate idols in his family. So he collects them all, including the rings and the amulets that went along with them. And the Hebrew word in verse four describes it this way. He chucked them unceremoniously into a hastily dug hole. He didn't give them a burial. He didn't hide them. He threw them out, covered them with dirt. So now being properly cleansed, the family heads south to Bethel. And God appears again and reminds Jacob of his new name, a word that means someone who struggled with both men and God, Israel, struggled God. And this has been Jacob's personality all along. He's always had this mixed response. He's constantly struggled to gain God's blessing. So pronouncing his new name, by pronouncing this name, God then repeats the blessing to Abraham, but he expands on it to an even greater degree. Verse 11, nations and kings will come from you, and the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your offspring. And it says God went up from Jacob. And verse 14 says that, Jacob set up a pillar of stone and poured out a drink offering along with oil. And we learned last week that this drink offering was a libation or a wine, and it it demonstrated the total commitment of the worshiper to God. He's literally pouring out his lifeblood on this altar to God. So Jacob has cleansed his household. He's trusted God to protect him. He's returned to Bethel to fulfill the vow that he made 20 years earlier. But there's a good reason for God to rename Jacob because in this instance he's properly responded at first, but he's still the stiff-necked man who's cheated his brother, who's schemed his uncle, and remains silent in the tragedies of, of Dinah and Shechem. So now God will clearly show Jacob with real-world examples that the time is drawing near for him to pass his blessing to the next generation. Now this map. This map shows Jacob's trail of tears from Shechem there in the north down to Bethel. And just north of Bethel, the beloved Deborah. The handmaiden for his mother, Rebecca dies. they travel a little bit further, and then, in childbirth, the beloved Rebecca or Rachel, just north of Bethlehem, gives birth to Benjamin, whom she names Ben O'Nee, because sh- her dying breath she dies and says he is the son of my sorrow, Ben O'Nee, but Abraham renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. An indication of just how much he treasured the beloved Rachel. This trail of tears continues then, because as Jacob passes south, he's, he's, he settles at Eder, a place that means tower, And ultimately, he will visit his father, Isaac, who is living down at Hebron, about 20 miles south. And then Isaac dies. Now, it's kind of ironic, really, that the father who thought he was dying 20 years earlier and wanted to pass the blessing to Esau but was tricked by Jacob actually lives another 60 years. But Jacob's mixed reactions, we've seen them all along. That brings us to our second fill in. God is glorified when we willingly, carefully, and joyfully pass our kingdom work to the next generation. When we stand before God and hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We want those words to reflect not only what we've done, but how well we have passed along the work to the next generation. How well we have equipped them, and how joyfully and carefully we pass it along to them. Those words will also include how graciously the next generation received the task of continuing the work and how faithful they will be to willingly and carefully and joyfully passing along their work to the next generation. Because the unchanging statistic is one out of one dies. We will all pass along to the next generation the work that we have done for kingdom work. That God has enabled us to do for him. And they must receive it. Continue it. And pass it along as well. How well they do that. And how well we do that. Will undergird those words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy. Of your master. So this passing, the blessing, then brings us to the last point. How not to respond. How not to respond. Jacob's faith never wavered. But his wavering commitment eventually affected his family. Look with me at at verse 22. While Israel, that's Jacob, lived in that land... Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. While Israel lived in that land. Using Jacob's new name here emphasizes the magnitude of Reuben's sin. (coughs) Martin Luther said said this, he said, Reuben's shaming of his father after God had given Jacob the honored name Israel makes this sin an insult not only toward Jacob, but toward God. It wasn't just simple lust. It was an attempt to grab the reins of leading the family. As Leah's firstborn, Reuben's choice of Rachel's maidservant shows not only his hatred, but how deeply divided this family had become because of Jacob's years of favoring Rachel over Leah. This stuff flows downhill. And as a result of his actions, Reuben would be denied the double share of the inheritance that was due him as the firstborn son. Instead, that inheritance would go to Jacob's two, or Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then later, in Genesis 49, Jacob, on his deathbed, refuses to give, uh, give Reuben his blessing. Here's our last fill-in then. The blessing cannot be grasped. It must be passed, as God intends. It cannot be grasped. It cannot be ripped away from the previous generation. It must be passed on both ends with joy. Isaac attempted to grasp the blessing and pass it on to Esau. Well, you remember that story. That was the reason why Jacob and Esau were at odds but God had chosen Jacob for the blessing. Now Reuben attempts to grab the blessing as well, but he came up less than empty because God intended the blessing for someone else. So what lessons does God have for his people in this story? Well, for the people of ancient Israel, it showed them how God was continually faithful to pass along his Abrahamic blessing according to God's timetable and God's choices. Because the people of ancient Israel were the descendants of Jacob. And they could see then how, as they went into the promised land and would, would soon be surrounded not only by the Canaanites and the Pezerites, P- P- but also the other ites that, were in that land and they saw how God had protected Jacob and brought him through even the, through the tragedy of the sin of his family and preserved him brought him home as he'd promised to his father safely they too could know that God would continue to work on their behalf because of his promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the Sadducees got so wrong. They didn't understand that Jacob and Isaac and Abraham still lived because God is a God of the living. So God will protect them too. Through all the dark days of the evil kings and the divided nation and the exile and the return to an empty temple, Israel could hold fast Because God had always been faithful. This was their gospel in many ways. This was their Bible. And they took great hope in knowing that God had always been faithful. And the lesson is similar for us. God will continue his promise through the generations. And like Israel, he will call us to trust God and obey, to trust and obey. So individually, we we prepare to pass the promise to our children because they're the next generation. And this we do by teaching them God's word and living lives that demonstrate the spirit-given faith through the life that we live as new creatures in Christ. We teach them the word, and we show them how to live it out. So our first priority is to pass the faith to our children. Second, as a church, we must prepare to pass this work to the next generation. I am so encouraged to look around here and see how God is bringing new families, young families, to this church. This is a 30-year ministry here in Santa Rosa. And God is bringing that next generation, blessing us with those families, to prepare them to take the reins of leading this church. We of the old guard, we're not called elders for, for no good reason, we of the old guard may be reluctant for the new ideas and styles, But we need to offer a measure of wisdom along with gentle counsel. If the new ideas, and and if we find the new ideas are biblical, we must embrace them. We should desire to provide the opportunity for our next generation to express their unique gifts into the future. Because they speak to their generation. And we want them to speak Christ. Now for the next generation, this text shows the need to wait patiently and prepare yourselves to be workers who properly handle the word of truth. Now there's wisdom that comes from years of experience. I keep telling my kids that. So it's important to listen you who are younger, as you gently take the mantle from our fingers. And as I said, there's 30 years of faithful biblical teaching here to be honored and preserved and together we want to walk prayerfully into the next 30 years. Jacob's reward was bittersweet because he failed to grasp the need to trust God and to graciously pass that blessing along. But regardless of how we may respond, God will advance his redemptive plan even through the failures that we may have. And he will do so because by two unchangeable things, his character and his promises, he will preserve his church. Let's pray.